Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you for coming. And um, I want to thank Galen Roshi also, who couldn't be here because she's in Japan, um, for inviting me to give this talk. Um, but also she helped me a lot with it, too. And um, I wanted to thank Trisha also, who was the initial inspiration for this practice and this, this talk, too. So, okay, so... Um, I could call this talk Disciplined by Miracles, or I could call it 3,000 Miracles in the Morning, 800 Miracles in the Evening, or I could call it uh, Plowing the Clouds and Sowing the Moon, that's S-O-W, Plowing the Clouds and Sowing the Moon, or Joe and the Coffee Pot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in one of Trisha's talks last summer during the practice period, she quoted the phrase, disciplined by miracles. And I, I felt like I'd been struck by lightning. <laughs> she was quoting from the Vimalakirti Sutra, which is what I would show, <laughs> the Vimalakirti Sutra, um, chapter six, which is titled, The Inconceivable Liberation. Let me tell the story again, echoing uh, Trisha's telling of it. So Vimalakirti is a wise and generous lay person uh, who practiced during the uh, lifetime of Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni Buddha. He's sick and the Buddha wants his students to go visit him. They, however, have often been corrected by Vimalakirti and they're all intimidated by him and they don't want to go. <laughs> Finally, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom, though also intimidated by Vimalakirti, agrees to go. And he, you know, he thinks there could be some interesting conversation and maybe he could actually learn something, <laughs> which to me is a sign of wisdom, right? <laughs> um, so uh, once he agrees to go, the others are curious to see what will happen and they follow after Manjushri. So there's this huge procession of 8,000 bodhisattvas, <laughs> 500 disciples, and disciples are the ones who have not yet committed to save, committed themselves to saving all beings. So we've got 8,000 bodhisattvas, 500 disciples, also hundreds and thousands of gods and goddesses. <laughs> And uh, lots of other beings too, chakras and brahmas, each the lord of his or her own Buddha verse, and lokapalas, who are divine protectors of Buddhism. This great multitude of beings all proceed together to visit Vimalakirti on his sickbed. And somehow they all fit into Vimalakirti's house. <laughs> um, Buddha's famous disciple, Shariputra, is disturbed. Where will we all sit? <laughs> um, Vimalakirti, from his bed, gently mocks Shariputra's concerns, but invites the Buddha of another realm to send some of their chairs. What <laughs> 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 they receive are 3,200,000 thrones. <laughs> That's 3,200,000 thrones. They are very large. <laughs> 
In fact, in order to sit on them, the bodhisattvas must make themselves very tall, 4,200,000 leagues tall. That's 4,200,000 leagues tall. If a league is equal to three miles, then 4,200,000 leagues would be 12,600,000 miles. The bodhisattvas make themselves 12,600,000 miles tall. <laughs> Shariputra, um, however, he, he, he can't do it. He says, I'm too small. <clears throat> Dimalakirti kindly shows him how to get big enough. All he has to do is bow to the Buddha who sent the gift of thrones. He does so and soon tall enough to take his seat. So let's take some time to imagine 3,200,000 thrones. Each one, the seat of a personage who's 12,600,000 miles tall. Let's, let's just try to imagine. Let's imagine, in fact, that they're all right here in this house. Or if, if you're on Zoom, in your house there. <clears throat> Um, if it helps, 12,600,000 miles is about 53 times the distance from the Earth to the moon. <clears throat> imagine that you yourself are this tall. Just right now, try to imagine that you yourself are this tall. Look around and imagine that all the people around you are also 12,600,000 miles tall. <laughs> it may be hard to imagine, but try. <laughs> Don't give up. <laughs> Just close your ear. You can look around and look and see. <laughs> well, maybe you can imagine it, but my guess is that you can't. <laughs> um, but in trying to do it, don't you feel expansive? Uh, do you feel like laughing, even laughing for joy? Yeah. Some people do. <laughs> um, look at the person next to you. Don't they seem inconceivably vast? <laughs> um, we're opening out into the inconceivable, what we cannot even imagine, liberating ourselves from confining concepts of space and time. <clears throat> Here's what Bhimalakirti um, actually says to Shariputra. <clears throat> Reverend Shariputra, for the Tathagata and the Bodhisattvas, there is a liberation called inconceivable. The bodhisattva who lives in the inconceivable liberation can put the king of mountains, Sumeru, which is so high, so great, so noble, and so vast, into a mustard seed. He can perform this feat without enlarging the mustard seed and without shrinking Mount Sumeru. Only those beings, here it is, <laughs> only those beings who are destined to be disciplined by miracles see and understand the putting of the king of mountains, Sumeru, into the mustard seed. That 
Reverend Shariputra is an entrance to the domain of the inconceivable liberation of the bodhisattvas. <clears throat> so to be disciplined by miracles, um, I think, is to train ourselves to break open our concepts, to break through the habits of mind that convince us that we are small. So we can live instead in this inconceivable liberation. <clears throat> so this phrase quoted by Trisha, Trisha, <laughs> in a Dharma talk, you see how tall she is? <laughs> <laughs> Um, during uh, the practice period, Seshin, disciplined by miracles, had for me immediate practical effect. During a Seshin, which is a five-day silent retreat, um, we're given special tasks to perform, very often tasks we have never done before and do not completely understand. <laughs> I don't think I am alone in being concerned that I will mess up <laughs> and in feeling disturbed when I do. In disturbance over my own mistakes, I become overly observant and even a little bit contemptuous, <laughs> contemptuous of the mistakes of others. This time, though, after Trisha's talk, I became well aware of how in concern over mistakes, I was belittling myself and others. But in belittling others, you are also belittling, belittling yourself, right? <clears throat> I realized that all this belittling going on was shrinking me down. I realized over and over again that this mis little mistake that someone made could not begin to negate the gorgeous, inconceivable beauty of that being I'd been belittling. It was a discipline over and over, recognizing how small I was making myself and looking for the miracle. And the miracle was always there. It was always there. <clears throat> so uh, there are many, many ways that we go on and on confining ourselves, making ourselves small. Uh, we hold on to a particular prejudice or story. Our likes and dislikes confine us. We try very hard to narrowly identify ourselves with a particular group or role or pursuit. We keep trying to figure out who we are by piling up adjectives to find a description of ourselves that will stick. <clears throat> I recently at the catastrophic theater um, saw the play Happy Days by Samuel Beckett. Did anyone else see it? Oh, well, you did. <laughs> she did. She was with me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so in this, this play is basically a monologue of a, a woman named Winnie, who is stuck in a hole in the ground. And this hole in the ground keeps getting tighter and deeper until by the end of the play, she's completely covered up to her neck. She's buried up to her neck. And we too can keep digging deeper and deeper holes for ourselves. <clears throat> Um, maybe we feel safer that way. I don't know. We just can confine ourselves, make ourselves small enough. Maybe we'll be, maybe we'll be safer. Um, <clears throat> there are hints in the play that Winnie could get out of her hole at any time, but she does not. 
was actually pretty terrifying. She's really suffering. She's suffering really terribly. You've read the play, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. <clears throat> really scary play. <laughs> so um, I have uh, dedicated myself to this practice. Whenever I am aware that I'm digging a hole for myself, I uh, turn my eye to the miracle. <clears throat> Dogen, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, wrote an essay on miracles. It's called Miracles. <laughs> and uh, you can find it in the Shobogenzo, um, the treasury of the true Dharma eye. I was immediately taken in the first paragraph with the expression, 3,000 miracles in the morning and 800 miracles in the evening. I was really charmed by the idea of all these miracles, but realized later that I had actually misread the sentence. The sentence is actually, miracles are practiced 3,000 times in the morning and 800 times in the evening. So we're back to the discipline or practice of miracles. <clears throat> so if a miracle for Vimalakirti is that which leads you beyond your habits of mind into an inconceivable liberation, what is a miracle for Dogen? He gives us several examples. <clears throat> the first is a story of a teacher and two students. The teacher is lying down when a student comes to see him. The teacher says, let me tell you about my dream. Of course, that got me all excited. <laughs> I love dreams. Let me tell you about my dream. And the student listens in, uh, leans in to listen. But instead of telling his, the dream, the teacher says, would you interpret my dream for me? I want to see how you do it. To interpret a dream he hasn't heard, <laughs> the student brings the teacher a basin of water and a towel. The teacher washes his face and sits up. When a second student comes in, the teacher tells him, Kweiji and I have been sharing miracles. He asks this second student to interpret the dream, and this one makes a bowl of tea and brings it to him. The teacher says, you, you two are really great. <laughs> you surpass even Shariputra and Maud uh, Galyayana with your miraculous activity. So to Dogen, these simple acts of kindness and love, bringing the water and towel and the tea, qualify as miraculous activity. He tells us, regard their interaction as a series of miracles. Dogen later says, miracles are nothing other than fetching water and carrying firewood. Even when people do not know that fetching water is a miracle, fetching water is undeniably a miracle. He compares fetching water, um, a great miracle because it happens every day, to these minor miracles. So here they are. Here are the minor miracles. A tuft of hair breathing in the vast ocean. A mustard seed storing Mount Sumeru. The top of the head sprouting water, feet spreading fire. 
So because these are rare occurrences, Dogen considers them minor miracles. <laughs> the natural and everyday is more miraculous than the supernatural. Um, a Buddha practices miracles that are grounded on the earth, he says. If we can find miracles in ordinary kindness and in ordinary activities grounded on this earth, it might really be possible to practice 3,000 miracles in the morning and 800 miracles in the evening. <clears throat> Let's say the morning is from 7 to noon. That's five hours. <laughs> that means 600 miracles per hour. <clears throat> 10 miracles per minute. One miracle every six seconds. Actually, it might just take six seconds to find a miracle. Should we try it? <laughs> Did you find one? <laughs> <clears throat> Let's say the evening is also five hours from 6 to 11. That means, and we've got 800 miracles in the evening, right? So that means 160 miracles per hour, 2.66 miracles per minute, and one miracle per 22 and a half seconds. So in the evening, we can linger over each miracle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're slowing, we're starting to slow down a little bit. <laughs> so I, I thought I'd make a very short list of possible morning or evening miracles. Ordinary acts of kindness. Sky, clouds, sun, moon, stars. Hands, feet, faces. Your own body movements. Thoughts. Thoughts themselves are, are miracles. I think we don't we don't even know where they come from. They just they just arrive. <laughs> um, the ebb and flow of feelings, the shapes of shadows, reflections in puddles um, or window glass, the taste of water, <laughs> the uh, the heat of the day on your skin. A tree you've walked by many times, but are just now seeing. That's my list, but this list is so not enough. <laughs> How about the way your, the soft skin of your palms merges with the steering wheel? How about the funny way the charging cord slips off the table? <laughs> and it's not some generalized, some generic moon, but that specific moon there. It's the taste of this water. It's this particular thought. And when do phenomena become miracles? When we shift from the eye of conventional reality, in which Shariputra was temporarily stuck, to the eye of miracle. When we look or listen with care and can see that the true nature of things is utterly beyond our habitual way of thinking of them. I can testify that I've been really trying this, <laughs> and I can testify that on ordinary mornings, this practice of miracles brings just tremendous joy. 
But um, where are your 3,000 miracles if you're having a bad day? <laughs> you wake up ill, depressed, in a state of loss and grief. You feel abandoned. You've just lost your home to flooding or fire. You've done a bad thing and you feel terribly guilty. <laughs> you're, you're anxious about climate change or the election. Um, you're a migrant and don't even know where in the world you are. I don't really have any definitive answers to this question, but I, I have been working, working with this. And so I have a few ideas. First of all, <clears throat> um, I don't think it's helpful to pretend that everything is fine and wonderful. <laughs> um, it's true, I, I think, that good things and bad things all fit together and flow together perfectly. But at the same time, it's true that life is full of suffering. <clears throat> when I'm anxious or depressed, I can still go outside and feel the warmth of the sun, hear the birds singing, and look at the moon. So that's that's one possibility. Um, and it, it often helps to soften the suffering. Um, but what for me is more profound is to do what we are often taught to, to do here in, uh, in, um, in Zen practice and go directly to the pain, give it space, delve into it deeply, looking around down there with receptivity and love and no attempt to get rid of it. Galen, in our discussion, Galen told me that um, uh, even sickness is a miracle. I found that hard <laughs> to understand. <clears throat> so I wonder, can I see that myself? Um, <clears throat> can I experience, uh, can experiences or phenomena I don't like also be gateways to inconceivable liberation? What happens when I experience suffering itself? not with the habit eye, the conventional eye, but with the eye of miracle. I'm convinced that giving this discipline of miracles a challenge will only strengthen it. In recent days, I've often brought to mind a passage from um, one of Hongzhi's practice instructions in cultivating the empty field. So in the beginning of this book are uh, many uh, paragraphs called practice instructions. This is a great book. Everybody. <laughs> They're called practice practice instructions, and um, they each have a title. The title of this one is "A Plowman, A Plowman on the Shining Field." Um, here's the beginning of this practice instruction. <clears throat> From the outset. Patch-robed monks have this field that is a clean, spacious, broad plain. Gazing ahead beyond any precipitous barriers, within the field, they plow the clouds and sow the moon. With clear, bright understanding, vast and expansive, the true self accepts its function, whether emerging or disintegrating whether in a position of receiving or releasing. I'd like to read that <laughs> From the outset, patch-robed monks have this field that is a clean, spacious, broad plain. 
Gazing ahead beyond any precipitous barriers within the field, they plow the clouds and sow the moon. With clear, bright understanding, vast and expansive, the true self accepts its function, whether emerging or disintegrating, whether in a position of receiving or releasing. So it's this phrase, plowing the clouds and sowing the moon, that um, I've really been working with. So a cloud could be seen as an obstruction to a view of the clear open sky. It could refer to the everyday particulars of old age, sickness, death, separation from loved ones, and karma. Okay. Some of you will recognize these as the five remembrances. They, they've been coming up a, a lot lately in the talks that have been given here. <clears throat> so also old age, sickness, death, separation, and karma are all serious potential obstructions. Plowing, I think, is the practice of loosening up the instruction, the obstruction, <laughs> loosening up the obstruction so it isn't the hard, dry, heavy blockage it would be otherwise, so it can breathe. Clouds are easy to plow. And I wonder, are our obstructions actually more ephemeral than we know? If the moon, as it often is in Zen literature, is a symbol of enlightenment, then in sowing the moon, we are sowing enlightenment right here now in the middle of the pain. <clears throat> We've all seen it, right? The moon shining through clouds. We all have that, that image. <clears throat> If enlightenment is not here and now, where is it? An often quoted Zen expression, just this is it. When suffering, I find I must say, this too is it. This too is it right here. If I have the discipline to plant enlightenment right here in the center of suffering. I do have to admit, though, that in my experience, pain is sometimes so hard and heavy that no amount of discipline helps, and only time can do the plowing. <clears throat> so Zen literature is full of vast imaginings, like the ones in the Vimalakirti Sutra. You'll find them in the Lotus Sutra, um, and if possible, even more fantastically in the Flower Ornament Scripture. Both meant, I think, to open us up to the inconceivable miracle of existence, veiled by our limited notions of space and time. <clears throat> On the other hand, we're encouraged by Dogen and others to live an ordinary life, to stay grounded on the earth, to be completely present here on the earth. So how do these two go together? <clears throat> Perhaps it's that being utterly present to the experience of the here and now is what reveals to us ordinary human beings the miraculousness of each phenomenon of all existence here on this earth. Uh, one morning here in the Zendo, <clears throat> during the second period of meditation, I realized I was sitting with Jewel Mountain, 
luminous ocean <laughs> and peaceful forest, <laughs> otherwise known as Royce, Kent, and Tim. <laughs> and Snow Hermitage, um, where after a long, cold journey, you can warm yourself by the fire, otherwise known as Galen. <laughs> Ordinary people I could trap in little boxes like lawyer or architect or nice guy <laughs> or i could open the eye of miracle and see them for what they really are vast unknowable my own dharma name is muso dream window it occurs to me that i may have been given that name as an encouragement or reminder to look from the window of my eye out onto the miracle of ordinary existence which in Zen is often compared to a dream. <clears throat> uh, many of you have been here on Sunday morning. Is, is Joe here? She's not here. She thought she might be able to. Oh, anyway, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story about Joe. <laughs> She's not here. <laughs> um, so most of you have been here on Sunday morning for Sochi, our 20-minute practice of temple cleaning. And part of the practice is negotiating the space with others, trying not to collide as we all move about the temple, completing our assigned tasks. Maite and I cleaned the incense bowls in the small passageway over there called the Cheetan Room between the kitchen and the side zendo. One Sunday, a few weeks ago, I was in the kitchen wanting to go through to the Cheetan Room. Our friend Joe was on her knees by the connecting door, rummaging around in the low cupboards there, blocking my way. I'm sure she was unaware of my presence. She finally found what she was looking for and pulled out, oh, pulled out from the cupboard a, a white coffee pot. I'm not really sure this is a coffee pot. It's a pitcher that's like this big white Maybe a coffee pot? <laughs> coffee pitcher. A coffee pitcher. Okay. Yeah. okay. She pulled it. Okay. Um, she finally found what she was looking for and she pulled it out. And it wasn't a performance. She was unaware of anyone watching. But there on bended knee, she dramatically held up the pot in two hands like this and said, Can you guess what she said? <laughs> No one? Huh? This is it. <laughs> very close, very close. She said, it's a miracle. <laughs> I 